Well, our scripture this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 11 through 36. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish... He would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe. And take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, will God mediate? God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall, this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, would you, together with your Son, send your Spirit to show us our need and Christ's provision. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Ralph Davis has a commentary series on First and Second Samuel. And one of the things that he reminds us is that sometimes we sort of look at the situation of the world and we think we understand what's happening. Uh, we look at the religious landscape around ourselves and we think we know what's going on. Um, and he points to an American pastor from the 1740s. His name was Samuel Blair. And in the 1740s, Samuel Blair complained that religion lay, as it were, a dying. They talked that way in the 1700s. He said, religion lay a dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. So you hear this very deep pessimism in this fellow, Samuel Blair. He, had, had, he saw the church around him and he said, this thing is dying. But he didn't know the truth. Because the truth was... Even as he wrote that letter, God was on the verge of bringing a season of tremendous revival to the United States, and we call that the Great Awakening. I guess guess the point of mentioning this is that we are very often poor judges of what God is doing, and we are very poor judges of what God is actually up to around us, and I think that certainly shows in our passage tonight. You know, if you had looked in at the priesthood of Israel— At this moment, if you had taken a snapshot of Israel and you'd looked at how these priests were living, you would have thought Israel was about to enter a new religious dark age. Um, And in reality, we see that he is in the process of bringing judgment and he's in the process of cleaning Israel up and he's in the process of raising up a new generation to breathe new life into Israel through Samuel. Um, But you wouldn't know that by looking at the priests of Israel, at least at this point. And so tonight, I, I want us to look at these two families that are in the narrative, these two families that just own the narrative. On the one hand, you have Eli's wicked sons, and on the other hand, you have Elkanah's favored son. I originally was going to call this a tale of two families, and then I said, you know what? Preachers need to stop listing a tale of two so-and-sos. I think I've got three sermons with a tale of two-something at the beginning. So instead, I thought, I've got to trash it. I need to give a nod to it. 
But we can't have these sermons constantly with that title. Uh, but you, it is a tale of two families tonight. It is a tale of Eli's family and Elkanah's family, really. And so let's look at both of these families tonight and, and see what God might have to say to us about himself and, and how he works. So first we have Eli's wicked sons. Our, our passage doesn't really stutter when it comes to these sons. It doesn't stutter when it comes to Hophni and Phinehas because it immediately says exactly what we're supposed to think of them. It says the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh. Two detrimental things to say. Uh, it is a very damning thing in the Old Testament to be called worthless. Um, the, the Hebrew word here is Belial. The Hebrew word, if you just look at it, it just says the sons were Belial. And it's a word Paul uses in the New Testament. He uses it to personify sin and evil. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, what accord has Christ with Belial. And that's the word the author uses here to describe these men. They're not just worthless, they're Belial. It's a terrible statement of condemnation for these men who are supposed to be ministers. They're supposed to be leaders of God's people, and yet they are worthless. But there's almost a greater indictment of these men, because it doesn't just say they were worthless. It says of them, they did not know Yahweh. And that's precisely what we find out. Verse 12 tells us they did not know the Lord. They did not know Yahweh. When we're reading the passage and you look at these men and you look at how they're living, it's very easy to get distracted by their sin to actually look at the way they're living and focus on their actions. But right here in this moment, in the very first verse, the author traces the problem back into the souls of these men. He goes back, and, and, you know, and we might be tempted by the things that they do, but the thing is we should not miss why they did them. Why were they worthless? Why did they steal the offerings of the Lord? Why did they lay with the women in the tent? And the answer is, well, the passage tells us we need to not miss why they did it. They didn't know the Lord. He doesn't just say that they didn't know how to do the sacrifices correctly. You see, this is not a problem of knowledge. It's not that they needed to be told better. Maybe they just had a, a slight mess up in, in their methodology or something like that. But it's not a problem with technique. It's not a problem with information. This is a soul problem and this is a heart problem. They are ministers of God and they do not know him. They don't know the one that they're ministering to people. And so that's why they sin. To know God himself is a protection. To know God is to have our, our souls guarded. The knowledge of God is not just a matter of weekly routine. It's armor for our souls. And it's an armor these men never put on. So the book tells us why they sin, but... Then let's, let's look at their sin. Let's look what they did. What is it that they're doing that God is so angry about? And the text explains it very well. Uh, it says, The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. 
All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, the next word is moreover. Everything after moreover is not something they should be doing. (laughs) Everything after moreover is, what are you doing? (laughs) And you see it even in the response of the people going, wait, you're not supposed to do that. So listen to this. Moreover. Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So the the picture of what's happening here is this. These Israelites are coming to make their offerings. But basically, if you wanted to sum it up, the priests are stealing the offerings that they're giving. They're taking the fat portions for themselves, even though the law says that the fat portions belong to God. That's what it really is if you sum it all up. So they're, they're robbing God, and they're robbing the people of God. And so the phrase that the text uses is this, this word contempt. They don't, they don't just have a bad method. They have contempt for God. Contempt doesn't just mean they didn't think about God. It means they despised God. They they despised him by not caring about what he thought. Uh, They had contempt for God's offering by thinking they could do whatever they wanted and that they'd be able to do it without consequences, that God wouldn't care. And that would all be bad enough. If that was all that was going on, if that's all these men were doing, it would be deep scandal in the priesthood of Israel, and it would be reason enough for the verdict that God gives. But the sin doesn't end there, because there was also sexual sin taking place. The passage tells us in verse 22 that Hophni and Phinehas were doing something else, showing that they didn't know Yahweh. So one fruit of not knowing Yahweh is contempt for his sacrifices, but here's the other fruit. It says they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, who are these women? They were possibly women who had taken a Nazarite vow. Uh, They may have even taken a vow of perpetual virginity to serve in God's house. Uh, You might remember, uh, if you rewind many months, we did a sermon series on the book of Judges, and we talked about Jephthah. And I made the case that Jephthah does not murder his daughter as a sacrifice, because that's not the kind of sacrifice God accepts. Instead, I made the argument that Jephthah's daughter served in the temple and that she took a vow of virginity. And and I would suggest that that's likely who these women are. These are the assistants to the priests, and they played a very important role. They were spiritual sisters made in the image of God. And the reality is Hophni and Phinehas treated them like things instead of as women and fellow image bearers of God. So make no mistake, what Hophni and Phinehas are doing is sexual sin. It is infidelity. We know at least one of them is married. So this is, and not only that, but this is a holy place. Not only are they committing this sin here, but they're disregarding the the place where they're doing it, right? And so this is sin compounding upon sin, the fact that these men are supposed to be priests of God. And these are men who are in a position of spiritual authority. And the sad reality of the day and age that we live in is that it has not become uncommon for us to hear reports of ministers who use their spiritual authority that they have to take advantage of those that they are spiritually responsible for. This is, of course, deep 
sin and evil and needs to be called what it is whenever it happens. Hophni and Phinehas are guilty. They're, they're turning the temple into a pagan place. You know, the pagans have temple prostitutes, but not Israel, not, not the people of God. And Israel knows about it. Word begins to spread. It, it happens blatantly enough that word gets back to Eli. But far worse than Eli finding out about it, God himself sees. God himself knows. And so in the meantime, what is Eli going to do about it? That's one of the tensions of the narrative. We, we do see at, at one point, Eli finally makes the decision to confront his sons for their sin. He's, he's known what kind of men they were before. And he's either turned a blind eye or he's made a half-hearted attempt to deal with what he saw in their lives. Now, notice this. The, the text doesn't say that he decided to confront them. It says, first, now Eli was very old. Why do you think the passage says Eli was very old? I actually think the reason is because he doesn't confront the sin immediately. Um, this is a man who had a duty as their father to deal with them early on in life, to discipline these young men, to set them on the right path. But it seems from the narrative that he has put this confrontation off as long as he can until he's very old. Now, maybe he does wait. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe I'm not interpreting him as generously as I could there. But to his credit, he does eventually say something to them. But I want you to notice the language. Notice the way he confronts them. And also keep in mind, God is unhappy with how he confronts them. But he confronts them by saying, why do you do such things? I hear of your evil dealings. In other words, in other words he comes to them with the reports. He's upset by what they've done, but he almost seems more upset that word has gotten around. Their indiscretions haven't been kept quiet. Notice what he says. He says, I hear of your dealings from all the people. Know my sons. It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. He keeps talking about the people. He keeps talking about the people. And his big concern is not God. His big concern is not the souls of his sons. What he's saying is everybody's talking about the junk that you're doing. <laughs> the Bible reminds us our sin should trouble us even if no one ever knows about it. Our sin should trouble us even if no one ever finds out about us, even if our reputation never takes a hit, it should trouble us when we sin. There's just something anemic and pathetic about the response of Eli. He seems to be more upset by appearances and what people are saying. He seems to be saying why more than he's calling them to actually repent. It's a really disappointing response to this blasphemous, sinful, serious activity in God's very temple. Just because your children are older, it doesn't mean that you stop parenting. Um, just because they're out of your house doesn't mean that they don't need you to parent them. You know, I'm, uh, I'm almost 40, and my father died when he was a little over 40. And I'm at that phase in life where I just constantly wish my father was alive so that he could give me advice, so that he could call me out when he can tell that I need it, when he could tell I'm out of line. My father, I imagine, is like one of the people in life who could tell me and set me straight when I needed it. Um, 
And here I am in my 40s, and I'm wishing that I had that. And if you're a parent, you know, you never stop being a parent. But that doesn't mean the subject is, is, is cut or dry. You know, for Christian parents, the reality of the wayward child is very real and it's very painful. And it's a matter, I think, where most parents who love the Lord feel deeply helpless to do anything about it. Because you can raise your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You can work to shepherd their hearts and raise them up in the gospel. And yet they can still wander far from the faith. Um, I have a very good friend who's a pastor. He's an older gentleman. And he raised up his child in the church. He raised his child up in the way they were supposed to go. And now his son is a well-off, high-achieving, wealthy atheist. And it is deeply painful for my friend who's a pastor to know every Sunday as he is preaching that his son is off living his own life far from the Lord. Deeply painful. And, and I'm sure that many of you know that deep pain of having a wayward child. The question is, does Eli have anything to teach us? Especially if, if we have a wayward child. Especially if we have a child who's left home or going their own way. Um, I think there are a few things that Eli can help us understand. The first is this. Eli's responsibility extends as far as his position. In other words, parents have responsibility in keeping with our, our place in relationship to our kids. Um, Eli has a greater responsibility than some parents because he is, in a sense, their boss. He's their overseer. He's the one that's supposed to be watching them and, and ruling over them. And so they answer to him in a way that many children as adults don't answer to their parents. Um, our discipleship of our children primarily takes place when they're under our roof. Once they're off on their own, we have very little, if any, say in their lives. And this doesn't mean we can't give them advice. It doesn't mean we can't gently point them in the right direction. But it also is true that we can't control our grown children. Um, the only scenario that's the case is if they're living under our roof and we're providing for them or, or something like that. Um, Eli does have a duty to love his sons by praying for them. And, and I would just say this, parents can always pray for wayward children, and they minister to them by prayer. My, my pastor friend whose son has, has left home and, and is now an atheist, he prays for him daily, every day. His son is on his heart. Every day, his son is on his mind. We have examples of God honoring the prayers of parents uh, Particularly St. Augustine. St. Augustine's mother, Monica, prayed for him well into adulthood. Um, all the while, he was a profligate. He was a philanderer. He had at least one child out of wedlock. And it was many years of prayer from Monica before God finally answered her prayer by changing Augustine's heart and changing Augustine's life. But it was years, years of prayer. And in his autobiography, Augustine specifically says he became a Christian because God listened to his mother's prayers. As parents, there is not a lot we can do once our children are out of the house. But we can go to the God who can help and who can heal and who can bless. Now, ultimately, these things are out of our hands, but they are never out of our God's hands. 
He can do great things. He can work miracles in our children's lives. So probably the most important principle, if you have wayward children, is bring them before the Lord. Do it daily. Second, Eli shows us something else. In keeping with what we just noted, it's important for us to disciple our children while they're under our roof. Um, This is a warning to those of us with children still at home, still under our charge. We need to teach them the truth. We need to bring them to church as often as we can. We need to show them that God is worth our time. And we need to do it in a tangible way by giving our time so that our children can see it. But ultimately, we minister to their hearts at home. And we do all that God calls us to do while we still have them. But even that doesn't guarantee they will necessarily follow the Lord. You know, Eli gives us disappointing and weak response to his sons. But that doesn't mean that ultimately Eli is himself wicked necessarily. Or that Eli himself is ultimately responsible. Now God faults him for his weak response to their sin. But, but notice this, that, that God's punishment is ultimately really on the sons. Hophni and Phinehas are responsible for themselves. They are responsible for their own sinful decisions. Um, these are grown men. These are men who are supposed to recognize the Lord. They're supposed to have regard for the Lord. They're supposed to model what it means to know Yahweh for all of Israel. And they are the ones responsible for their actions. But in spite of all of these things, God does render a decision in the matter. And we'll see that verdict in next week's passage as it's carried out. But, but in verse 25, it does tell us that it was the Lord's will to put them to death. So what this is doing is it's foreshadowing. It's showing us the completion of God's purpose next week. So that's, that's Eli's family. That's Eli's wicked sons. But... The second family we see tonight is Elkanah's family, and specifically it's Elkanah's favorite son, and that favorite son is Samuel. Now, notice that this passage keeps alternating between Hophni, Phinehas, and Samuel. Uh, First Samuel is intentionally bouncing back and forth between them in the narrative. It's contrasting them on purpose. On the one hand, you have Hophni, Phinehas, and Eli. And they represent old, stale, bored religion that's just waiting to keel over and die. And then on the other hand, you have Samuel, who is, he's little. Um, he's at least five or six years old by the, by the end of the narrative. We don't know how old he is starting out. And, but, but little Samuel represents the future of Israel. And, and he is the fruit of a household that loves God. A household that puts a high regard on the service that he's doing in the temple to his family. This is very important. They're very supportive of him. You start to see that in verse 11. It says the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. And again, it's it's hard to guess how old he is. He's at least five years old. But all we really know is that he seems to have some kind of growing spiritual awareness at this point. He's probably very small still because in verse 19, it says, it's probably the cutest verse in the whole Bible. Let's just be honest. Verse 19, it says that his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. You can just imagine her, the the, the labor of love that she would have put into that robe, the amount of time. She's going once a year so she can take as long with that robe as, as she wants. And you could also imagine she's far away, so she has to guess how old Is Samuel going to be in a year? How big is he going to be? How much is he going to grow? 
How big is he going to need this little adorable robe to be for him to fit into it throughout the entire year? And you, and you can see just how much, how she expresses her love for her son here and the way that she does this. Um, you know, his mommy makes him his special little robes. And here he is, you can just imagine this little person walking around the temple and carrying around the, the, the priestly utensils and doing work and learning how the, 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 the temple is supposed to be run. And, and here he is with his custom tiny robe. And then as soon as it tells us he was ministering to the Lord, in the very next verse it says, the sons of Eli were worthless men. So at the same time, Little Samuel is growing up in the presence of God. He's growing up also in the presence of Hophni and Phinehas, these worthless men who are ministering sloppily without regard for God. They're fornicating in and around the tent of meeting. Do you think little Samuel never saw what was going on? He never saw the things that these men were doing. You know, this little guy may have grown up in the presence of God, but he also grew up in really a pretty rough environment. And this is, a, I think, a very important reminder that Christians can flourish wherever we find ourselves. Um, you know, if, if you're a kid that goes to public schools, there aren't a lot of you, but there's some of you, you you're probably used to that, growing up, being around a rough environment. Um, one of my kids told me the other day that he's got a friend who's an avowed atheist. Ten-year-old kid. He's an atheist. He grew up in a household, a family of atheists. Uh, I won't tell you the words my children have learned from being on the school bus, but you can imagine. Um, little Samuel is proof that it isn't necessary to be around believers all the time in order to stay strong in the faith. He is not around believers. He is surrounded by unbelievers in his work. And so here's a reminder, not just for if you're in public school, but if you have a secular job, if you work around non-Christians, you are probably used to the challenges that involves. Um, Almost every job I had before I moved to Jackson, Mississippi, I was surrounded by unbelievers or at least by severely backslidden Christians. You know, it isn't necessary for us to constantly be surrounded by like-minded people all the time so that we can grow or flourish in the faith. In part, that's what our church is supposed to be. Church is supposed to be our chance to be around each other and build each other up so we can go back into the world and, and, and survive for another week. Um, I know a few of you have those sort of difficult callings and difficult jobs where you are around a lot of unbelievers. So think about this, though. Samuel learns about the priesthood from Eli But in some ways, he has it modeled for him by Hophni and Phinehas. So he has very poor examples, of course. And yet, what does verse 21 say? It says, not only does Hannah have five more children, but it says, Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He is a young man or a little boy who lives his life before the face of God. And then in verse 26 After Eli's pathetic confrontation with his sons, we're again told of Samuel's growth. It says, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in the stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So notice what's happening. They are shrinking. He is growing. We should praise God. And this is is indicated here. We are not prisoners of our environment. 
Praise God, we are not prisoners of our environment. Just because we grow up in a bad environment or even have a less than ideal childhood doesn't mean God can't use us and it doesn't mean he won't use us. Uh, Westerners can be very fatalistic about life. I, I've noticed this lately if you listen to the, to the abortion debates. Uh, you see a lot of people making arguments about growing up in low-income households, growing up in single-parent households. And there is this assumption, if you grow up in a low-income household, you're always going to be poor. They assume if you grow up in a bad neighborhood, well, you'll become a criminal. Uh, they assume if you grow up in a single-parent household, you may be better off aborted. And many use this rationale to justify that sort of evil. And while those things will always be factors in people's lives, Samuel shows us that God makes all the difference, not environments. We cannot make arguments for killing whole swaths of children from different economic classes because of a fatalistic assumption about what their life is going to be like. We don't know what their life is going to be like. There are people who rise from the ashes of a difficult childhood and a difficult life to become very successful in life. There is nothing about life that we can know exactly what's going to happen because of somebody's socioeconomic state. Or in this case, religious upbringing. Samuel is not raised in the best environment, and yet he's not a prison prisoner to that environment. Why? Because God makes the difference. Our passage tonight has a stark lesson for us. It reminds us God is at work behind the scenes, even in seemingly dark times. If you had just looked at the priesthood of Israel and decided you were going to evaluate the spiritual state of Israel based on what the leadership was doing, you might have been very tempted to despair. We are in big trouble if this is how our priests live, right? And yet, isn't this book showing us that even while things are falling apart in the priesthood, God is raising up a new priesthood right before their eyes? Um, isn't he showing us here that God is always at work even when we can't see it yet? I suspect we are far too negative, far too pessimistic about the world that we live in. And we're, we, we may be very pessimistic about the future, or at least we can be. Right? If, you watch, if you watch TV news, you are constantly hit with that ringing gong telling you more bad news from somewhere in the world. Right? News alert, mudslide, hundreds die. Um, news alert, someone is terrible. Um, news alert, somebody hates you, um, thinks you're a horrible person. Right? News alert, two celebrities you've never heard of are divorcing. And, or in tonight's case, news alert, Priests caught in sex scandal, Israel's religious community in downward spiral. Bad news generates viewers, it generates advertisers. There is always more, more bad news to be found. It grabs eyes, it grabs interests, and we don't hear a lot of good news. Um, but Mark Twain, to paraphrase Mark Twain, he said, bad news travels around the world, halfway around the world before the good news even has its shoes on. If our regular diet is news alerts constantly hammering and traumatizing us on the television, if we follow Facebook pages designed to make us unhappy with the world around us, if, if our regular intake is the problems of the world, we will become people who are difficult to persuade that there is actually any hope to be found. This isn't quite the same, but uh, a few Sundays ago, a good friend of mine who's a pastor, uh, he started a church plant. And 
that particular, uh, I think it was three Sundays ago, they had their very first church service. And they, in their anticipation, they expected about 50 people for the first service. And so they set up enough chairs for 55 people. They poured enough wine for 75 people. And instead, 95 people showed up. They did not have enough wine. They did not have enough chairs. They set their eyes too low. They set their expectations too low. They grossly underestimated how many people were coming. Why did they do that? Because they didn't know what God was really up to. They just didn't know. Tonight we see that hope grows up in difficult circumstances that do seem hopeless. And so we find out that we have a legitimate reason not to look at the world around us and make negative predictions or to despair. Maybe you feel pessimistic right now. Maybe you look at the world around you and you feel very dark about the future. But tonight, our God is showing us that cynicism and pessimism are never really justified because we live in God's world. We live in the world where God is at work. And because he is wise and because he is powerful and because he is good, he protects us from despair. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, who is the perfect priest. The one who truly will and does stand between us and our sin. And the holy God of the universe. We thank you for this perfect service that you render for us. For this absolute love. And for the knowledge that you will never, ever fail as our priest. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.